0: Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through verse 11, and then we'll open our time in prayer. Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness, or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Our Father, we come now to your word with the expectation that through your word you will speak to us. We believe that this is your revelation to us and you have something for us this morning and we ask that you would convict our hearts, encourage us together and unite us together in the person of your Son through your Spirit as we meditate upon the truth of your word. We ask that you would bless it and attend it with your power, with your enthusiasm and with your purpose this morning to the glory of Jesus Christ and in his name we ask. Amen. In his book titled uh, Living a Life of Joy, I think that was it, now I forgot the title of it right at the beginning, it was there just a second ago, a, a book by Dwight Pentecost from Dallas Theological Seminary. He tells the story of a church in the Dallas area that over the course of a period of time started to sort of fracture into these groups and there was division amongst the members of the church into basically two factions. And uh, the factions and the division and the strife and jealousy between the two groups got so intense that one group began to file a lawsuit against the other group to get the building from them so that they could control the facilities. And the other group filed a lawsuit, a counter lawsuit against the first group to make sure that they kept the facilities. And it went to court. And, of course, when churches sue each other or people within the church sue each other and it goes to a pagan court, it is mocked and it became known in the community and because the newspaper, the newspaper followed the story. It eventually went to a judge who determined that the, the court really had no jurisdiction over the case until the issue had gone through the denominational court structure and had been through mediation and arbitration and the denomination had made a decision. So he sort of kicked it out of the courtroom and the two factions went to the denomination. And the denomination formed a a council, a court of sorts, and each side got to present their case. And so they heard the first group give their presentation, and then they heard the second group give their presentation, and the denomination, after they heard both sides, awarded the church and the facilities and all of the resources to one of the particular groups. The slighted group took off and left and went and started their own church in the Dallas area, and of course, all through that whole process, the newspapers in in the Dallas area covered the whole thing and gave all of the gory details of what was said and who was wrong and what was going on. And it came out in the newspaper for everybody in the city of Dallas and all the communities surrounding Dallas to read. It came out that in the process of going through all of this before the denomination, that the reason for this division, the thing that had started all of this, was that one of the elders of the church at a church dinner had received a smaller piece of ham than the child that was seated next to him. Now, we have a potluck next week. (laughs) So I'm giving this by way of warning. Nobody bring any ham to the church potluck. Now you and I laugh at that, we chuckle at such things, but you know that I could, I could multiply illustrations of that type of thing, don't you? You know that. It happened, it has happened in our community. It happens in big churches. It happens in small churches. It happens in evangelical churches. It happens in liberal churches. It happens in conservative churches. It happens in mainline churches. It happens in non-denominational churches and denominational churches. It happens in congregational rule churches. It happens in elder-run churches. It happens in every group of people that get together and call themselves Christians are threatened by that one sin that tends to bring disunity and disharmony to the group of God's people. And we chuckle at that. And initially, when I read that this last week, I thought to myself, we're beyond that. Not in this church. That would never happen in this church. That's my initial response. But then deep down in my heart, I am instantly brought back to the realization that all of you are sinners, and myself included. And at any time you get a whole bunch of sinners gathered together with each other, to live with each other, you are bound to have problems. It happens in a marriage. That's why no marriage is perfect. No marriage is perfect because you take two sinful people, you put them in a house together, make them live with each other, and you're going to have problems. I ran across a quote William Barclay. And when I read this, I thought, I, I'd never thought of this before, but as I read it, I thought, that is incredibly profound. Listen to what Barclay says. The one danger which threatened the Philippian church was that of disunity. There is a sense in which that is the danger of every healthy church. Oh. Now that I never thought of. A healthy church. He says there is a sense in which that is the danger of every healthy church. It is when people are really in earnest, when their beliefs really matter to them, then they are attempt, then they are apt to get up against each other, and the greater their enthusiasm, the greater the danger that they may collide. It is against that danger that Paul wished to safeguard his friends in the Philippian church. It is the danger that faces every healthy church. Now obviously it faces unhealthy churches as well. No, no healthy church can honestly said to be to divide over whether the elder got a bigger piece of ham than the kid sitting next to him at the at the potluck, and you just hope that the kid wasn't his own son or something like that. But a healthy church, how do healthy churches, why is that a danger for healthy churches? I started to think about that. and you know why it is? It's because healthy churches are churches where doctrine is taught. Healthy churches are churches where teaching is preeminent, where the Word of God is preeminent, where people stand for their convictions. Healthy churches are churches where they write out what they believe and they say, this we will stand on and we will not waver. And in healthy churches where you have people of conviction and people of principle standing on things, they are apt to butt heads with each other. Because we see all of these doctrinal issues that we're willing to die on or die for. All of these mounds that we're willing to die on and doctrines we're willing to go to the wall for. And so as people of conviction get together, that's when they begin to knock heads with each other. Now you walk into a church where they don't believe anything in particular. And their doctrinal statement looks like something just sort of cobbled together out of the out of the latest New Age movement. Are you going to find a vision there? No, nobody stands on anything. You want to believe this? You want that? Fine, I don't care. There's no truth. We can't know truth. But it is the healthy churches where people of conviction get together, where doctrine is taught, where things do matter, where people stand, that we are apt to butt heads with each other. And such a church was the church at Philippi. And there were some rumblings beneath the surface of the church. Nothing had reached the state in the church in Philippi where elders were upset with children getting larger pieces of ham. It hadn't got to that point yet. They weren't going to court with each other. There weren't acute divisions and, and and hot tensions in the church. But there were, well, for instance, there were these two ladies who just could not get together. We read about that in Philippians chapter 4. Yodia and Syntyche. And Paul says, I beg of you, just live in harmony together. Get along. Well, when stuff like that is starting to pop up in the congregation, Paul is hearing about it and he wants to make sure that they don't fall prey to the temptation. That they don't fall into the sin of allowing these non-essential issues to divide them and to rupture the harmony that should exist among the people of God. So it begins in Philippians chapter 2. Actually, it started back in chapter 1. But in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul gives some very practical teaching regarding the subject of unity. Perhaps the most concise and the most straightforward and the most loaded passage on the subject of Christian unity of any that's in the New Testament. It's loaded with meaning. Before we get into chapter 2, I want to give you a, a review of sort of, of where we've been and sort of cast the vision for where we're going in the next few weeks, because I've got to give you a sort of an outline of chapter 2. You'll notice at the beginning of chapter 2, there's a word there, right? The first word of the chapter, and what is it? Therefore. Now, as you read the Bible, sometimes you come across chapter divisions that are very helpful. They kind of break up the thought as you go through. This, is, this chapter division falls into the not very helpful category. It really, if you were going to divide it by subject or by flow of thought, you would have put it above cha- verse 27 of chapter 1. Because Paul says, therefore, and he's calling back to our minds what he has done in chapter 1. Now let me remind you of our little helpful division for the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, all four chapters, is kind of structured around a a, a good preacher's outline, because they all start with a letter P. A good preacher's outline they all start with a letter P. The first chapter is the purpose of the Christian life. Chapter 1, verse 21. To live as Christ. The purpose of Christian living is Christ. Now, part of living Christ is, of course, to have Christ's emphasis, Christ's focus, Christ's priorities, and that means the gospel. So as you read through chapter 1, start at verse 5, you will notice all of the messages, mentions of the word gospel in chapter 1, because the focus of chapter 1 is on the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 5 speaks of the participation that we have in the gospel from the first day until now. Chapter 1, verse 7, Paul mentions his defense and confirmation of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 12, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has actually been to the furtherance of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says I'm appointed to the defense of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 27, have a conduct worthy of the gospel. And at the end of chapter 1, verse 27, we are to strive together for the faith of the gospel. What do you think Paul's emphasizing in chapter 1? The gospel. A a body of truth that has been delivered to us. That's the emphasis of chapter 1. And if you are going to live Christ, then you must live the gospel. And if for you to live is Christ, then for you to live is the gospel. You promote the gospel, defend the gospel, love the gospel, stand for the gospel, stand on the gospel, it's all about the gospel. That's all chapter 1. To live is Christ, that's the purpose of Christian living. Chapter 2 is the pattern for Christian living. What does somebody who lives Christ look like in their day-to-day life? Chapter 2, verse 1. If there are these things in Christ, then you are to not be selfish and not be conceited and not do anything for your own reasons. The person who lives Christ lives others, lives for others. And that's the emphasis of verses 1 through 4. Verse 5, through the rest of the chapter, the Apostle Paul gives us four illustrations of what it means to live Christ. Four patterns, because chapter 2 is the pattern for Christian living. The first one is in verse 5, and that's Christ, who although He exists in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to at all costs, but He emptied Himself and became a man and died on a cross, the most humiliating death of all, and gave His life in the sacrifice and service for others. That's selfless living. That's what it means to have the mind of Christ. He's the primary pattern. But then Paul gives us three more illustrations. Notice verse, chapter 2, verse 17. The second illustration is Paul himself. Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. Paul didn't consider himself as anything, but just something to be poured out for the Philippians' lives. The third illustration or pattern of selfless living is Timothy, verse 20. Verse 19, actually, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests and not those of Christ Jesus. But Timothy was a servant of proven worth who would live for the sake of the Philippians. He's the third illustration. The fourth illustration of selfless living in chapter 2 is Epaphroditus. Verse 25, I thought it necessary to send you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, he was longing for you in distress because you heard that he was sick. So he had selflessly served the apostle Paul and was selflessly worried about the Philippians because they heard that Epaphroditus was sick. So what's the pattern for Christian living? It's selflessness. And there's four illustrations of it. Jesus, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. That's all of chapter 2. So today we're going to begin looking at verses 1 through 4. And I want you to read them together with me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul talks about living with people. In verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul talks about living for people. There's a logical order to that, is there not? You cannot really live for somebody until you learn to live with somebody. Is that as obvious to you as it is to me? If If you're living with your spouse, you will not be able to live for your spouse, that is to give yourself in sacrificial service to your spouse until you first learn how to live with your spouse. First of all, you have to learn what it is to be united in spirit and intent on one purpose, and you must have unity together before there can be that true union. So Paul says in verses 1 to 2, here's how you live with people, verses 3 to 4, here's how you live for people. And you have to learn how to live with them before you can learn how to live for them. So in verses 1 and 2, we're going to look at four objective spiritual realities that are true of us that sort of ground this idea of Christian unity. Because as you read through verses 1 to 4, you see that the main theme is united in spirit, intent on one purpose, the same love, the same heart, the same mind. It's Christian unity that is at the the center of verses 1 to 4. So in verse 1, he says that our Christian unity is grounded in these four spiritual realities. And then in verse 2, our Christian unity is expressed through these four very practical responsibilities. So let's look at the four spiritual realities in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and you'll notice the repetition of the word if, Do you notice that? A is the Greek word. A, kind of like a Canadian. The Greek word is A. If there is this, if there is this, if there is this, and he gives four of them. Just boom, boom, boom. Four of them right in a row. And he's not using the word if in the sense of I'm doubting that this is true. I'm hoping that it's true. It might be true. It might not be if. That's not the sense of if. He's using the word if in the sense of since. He is saying, if this is true, and he's assuming that it is, and that's the way it's used here, if this is true, and 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 I assume and know that they are true of you, then you have the responsibility to do one, two, three, and 4 in verse 2. We use the term if that way today, don't we? If you're going to meet in a gym, you're going to have problems. Are we meeting in a gym? We know it to be true. We realize that it's true. We assume it to be true. And so we say, if you're going to meet in a gym, you're going to have sound problems. If you're going to meet in a gym, you're going to have inconveniences. If you're going to use a school, well, we're doing that, right? It's the same thing that Paul's doing. He's using the term if and assuming that since these things are true. And then he lists four things. First, if there be any encouragement in Christ. Paraklesis is the word encouragement. Paraclete is the word that's used in John chapter, I think it's 16, of the Holy Spirit, who is the comforter, who comes alongside of us and comforts us. To somebody meant to call somebody alongside. Para from alongside as in parallel, and clasis from kleo, which meant to call. And you could call somebody alongside of you in two different ways. So there's two possible meanings for the word in this context. It is possible that the Apostle Paul might mean paraclesis in the sense of exhortation or encouragement, or it might be that he means it in a sense of comfort or consolation. One of those two is true, either encouragement and exhortation, or Comfort and consolation. Now what do you think it is that Paul is saying? You might call somebody alongside of yourself, much like I do my kids when they're running really slow and we're running late for something, which is usually everywhere we go at any time of the day. And I might say, come on, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Come on. We're in a hurry. We're in a hurry. I'm calling them up alongside of me. Now that's biblical. That's why I do it. Second, you could use it in the sense of coming alongside of somebody, stepping up and putting your arm around them and walking with them. Now, which sense do you think Paul is talking about? In verse 29 and 30, he said, You've been appointed to suffer. You've been given the gift of suffering. It is God's gift to you, and you're going to suffer, and you're experiencing the same conflict that you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any comfort in Christ, is there comfort in Christ? That's what Paul is calling back to their minds. You know because you have experienced and you have seen it and you have felt it and it has been real to you, that comfort, that coming alongside of you that Christ has done for you. Now friends, I just want to remind you of something. Those who suffer know something that those of us who have never suffered know. And it is that it is when you suffer that God gives you the grace to handle the suffer suffering if you draw near to Him. I sometimes wonder to myself, what if we ever get to the point in this country where Christians are persecuted and I'm asked or expected or have the opportunity to die for my faith? Would I have the ability to do it? Then I begin to worry, what if I had to watch my kids be tortured and killed or my wife tortured and killed? And this is not speculative. This happens all over the world. Every day, even today while we meet here, there are people dying for the Christian faith. But if I'm ever forced to, to make that decision, if I'm ever put in that opportunity, would I be able to do that? Would I be able to stand strong? To hold the line, would I be able to endure to the end and give my blood as a testimony to the gospel? I start to worry about that, then I realize I don't have to, I don't have to have the grace to deal with that now, do I? I don't need the grace to deal with suffering and affliction, and trial and temptation. I don't have to have the grace to deal with martyrdom until I'm actually asked to do it. And when the Lord asks you to do it, when you draw near to Him in the midst of it, then the grace is there and the grace is sufficient. So they had received a grace, and it was a grace that was given and a comfort that was given in Christ. And Paul says, since you have experienced the comfort that is in Christ. Second thing, they had experienced the consolation of love. Consolation, a very similar word to the word in verse 1 that means comfort and consolation. The consolation of love. I think he's sort of restating himself, but in a different way, a little bit, with a different emphasis, and it's that on love. And this is not love that the Philippians give to each other, and it's not love that the Philippians give to God. This is love that comes from God. It is a received love, not a given love. And he's saying, since you have received the consolation or the comfort that comes through the love of God, the love of Christ that was given to you in your salvation. Anytime you and I go through suffering or affliction or trials or temptations or life seems storm-tossed, all we have to do is cast our gaze for a little bit of time upon the cross and we instantly come to the conclusion that a God who loves us that much would never allow anything that is not for our good to come into our lives. Since you have experienced not only the comfort that comes from Christ, but the comfort and consolation that comes from the love of God to you, a third thing, since you have experienced, or if there is any, fellowship of the Spirit. Koinonia, a word that we've already come to. Participation in the Gospel. Back in chapter 1, verse 5. We've come across this term koinonia before. It means an active participation in something. Remember it was used of business partners who would both invest something into a business and go in together, together in something. It was a koinonia. It was an active participation in something. That's the way this word is used. You and I have an active participation in what? I should say more accurately, in whom? In the Holy Spirit. Listen, this is the same Holy Spirit that Paul participated in. Our fellowship in the Spirit is the same Spirit as Paul, the same Spirit as the Philippians, the same Spirit as all Christians throughout all of church history. All of us together actively participate together with each other in the Spirit. It's the same Spirit that baptized all of us into the body of Christ. It is one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The same Spirit gifts me that gifts you. The same Spirit redeemed me that redeems you. The same Spirit called you that called me and gifted you that gifted me and that brought you to faith and created faith within and illuminates your mind. It's all the same Spirit. It's that work of salvation and you and I actively participate in Him. How do we do that? Whenever we serve together, we preach together, we teach together, we worship together, we sing together, we listen to the Word of God together, we fellowship together, we actively participate in the Spirit of God. He's the one that enlivens us and and gives us faith and gives us life and gives us spiritual life and animates the very church of God. The church of God, all of us corporately are a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And so the Spirit of God is the one who works in you and through you and around you and it is that sphere in which we actively participate. That enough, just that realization enough, should be sufficient to, to lay aside any sort of partisan spirit among us. Should it not? Just the realization that the same Spirit that gifts you and has called you and loves you and gives you, has given you life is the same Spirit that's done that to me. And in you is the same Holy Spirit that is in me. So how can I seek my own, my own interests, my own agenda, my own desires at your expense without somehow doing harm to myself since we are participants together in the Spirit of God? How can we do that? That realization alone, the fact that all of us participate together in the Spirit is enough to do away with any sort of division that you and I might be prone to begin or to start or to launch amongst the people of God. If any comfort in Christ, if any comfort in love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, and what's the fourth one? If any affection and compassion. Affection. That's my word again. You know what it is? Teenagers know this. They were using it for three weeks after the last time we went through this. Splachnon. Remember that word? Splachnon. It referred to the bowels, the innards, particularly the more noble organs. And it was used of that deep affection that would come from deep within an individual that had to be expressed. Splachnon, that type of affection. Paul used it back in chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, you know of the deep affection that I have for you from the very In most part of my being, I love you. Now once again, this is not the Philippians' affection for each other or the Philippians' affection for God. This is a received affection from God for them. And mercies, the compassion means mercies. It was a word that was used to describe the Father of mercies in Romans chapter 12, speaking of God who is the Father of mercies. So you and I have received affection and mercies, and now you put them all together. If there be any, and I know there is because you've all experienced this, the comfort that is in Christ, the comfort that is in love, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and the affection and compassion that became yours at the moment of salvation. All of you have experienced that. And as the Philippians are reading this, they would be saying to themselves, Paul is describing our salvation. And Paul is describing all of the blessings that we have received in Christ. And he sums it right up And just like a Like a rapid fire gun, one right after the another, all four of them. You notice that he doesn't stop to explain what each one is. He just, as rapidly as possible, begins to list these spiritual blessings that they had experienced. And I want you to understand, these are things that they had experienced. These are not, these are objective truths in one sense, but they are objective truths that they themselves had experienced. They'd experienced the comfort, they'd experienced the affection, they'd experienced the mercy, they had experienced the fellowship. Is something that they knew to be true because they had walked in it. Those are the four objective spiritual realities which form the foundation, the ground for Christian unity. Now, number two, the four practical responsibilities of Christian unity is in verse two. Make my joy complete. here I want you to picture something. You have the Apostle Paul sitting in a prison. He's been unable to travel for almost five years now since he was arrested in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21. It has been five years since he has been able to travel freely. He's sitting in a prison as hampered and limited as he is and he writes to the Philippians all the way through chapter 1. He was saying, I have joy. I'm rejoicing. I have no problems. This is the Spirit. My joy is just right up to here is where my joy is at. All the way up to the top. And then he says in chapter 2, I want you to make it complete. Just one thing is lacking. I want you to make my joy complete by being this way. And then he lists four spiritual responsibilities, practical responsibilities that we have. And the Philippians, as they are reading this, would be reading this and thinking to themselves, we don't want to do anything in our church that might cause the Apostle Paul more distress or more harm in his imprisonment, would we? This is the man who founded our church, pastored our church, loves our church, has written to our church. We've supported him as a missionary. And the Apostle Paul says, look, basically, if you have any love for me, I want you to make my joy complete. Fill it up all the way to the brim. And here's how you can do it. I want to hear that these things are true of you. A little extra motivation for living holy, isn't it? A little extra motivation for living in unity. Because every time Yodi and Syntyche would start their to each other over in the corner at the church potluck, somebody would have to come to them and say, look, you trying to hurt the Apostle Paul in this? Can you just get together? Let's make his joy complete by doing away with all of this beginning of schisms and divisions between us. Make my joy complete by doing four things, by being four things. Number one, we're going to go through these kind of quick and then I'm going to apply it at the end. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. For neo is the word and it means to think something. It refers to your attitude, your disposition, your mental direction in which you're going the mental attitude or disposition of your mind. Of the 26 times that phroneo is used in all the New Testament, 10 of them are in the epistle to the Philippians. This book is really about Christian thinking. How Christians think about the gospel, how Christians think about each other, how Christians think about Christ, how Christians think about others, how Christians think about what they let their mind dwell on. And so he says in verse 2, Be of the same mind, the same mental disposition. Now, does that mean that all of us have to agree on every little thing? No. What kind of mental disposition is he talking about? Chapter 1, the Gospel. Right? There's truth that is at stake. There's truth that is at issue. So the Apostle Paul, after spending a chapter talking about the Gospel, says, be of the same mind. Be united in one way of thinking about issues of truth. doesn't matter whether you like green and I don't like the color green, or whether you like Coke and I like Pepsi, or whatever else it may be. He's not talking about those things. He's talking about issues of truth, issues of the Gospel, issues pertaining to sound doctrine and theology and our life in Christ. Be of the same mind. Second, maintaining the same love. The same love that Christ loved you with, that affection, you have to maintain that and be of that same love. You love me the way I love you, and we love each other equally. That's the way it should be. I should love you with the same love that I have received from Christ, and you should love me with the same love that you have received from Christ. And I am not to love you more than I love some other Christian brother. I might like you more than I like somebody else, but I am to love you equally. I'm to love you equally. I can't say, well, I'm going to give Christian love to you and not to this guy, because this guy's dress and mannerisms and voice really grates on me. His dress and his mannerisms and his voice might really grate on me, but I still can love him. And I am to love him with the same love. For all of us. Right? No partiality. You say, well, I love Pastor so-and-so better than I like Pastor so-and-so. And And there can't be any of that. That's the beginning of a church split. I love ham, bigger piece of ham, more than the boys, more than I love the boys sitting next to me. That's how you get divisions. Be of the same love. United in spirit. And the word is only used here in all the New Testament. It means one-souled. Now somebody who has, can you imagine the conflict that would be within somebody's mind or somebody's heart in life if they had two souls? And each one of them wanted to do something different because they had two souls. Can you imagine the conflict and the in, inner disunity and the inner conflict and strife that would exist between one individual if they had two souls? Paul says, I want you to be one-souled, sun-sukkos, having one intent in one spirit, one soul together. No inner conflict, no inner turmoil within the body. Having nothing there that divides you. No strife, no jealousy, no conceit, no vainglory, no selfish ambition. None of that. One soul. And the fourth thing is intent on one purpose. And that's a translation of the same word that was used in the first phrase, for the word mind again. And here it doesn't refer to the mental disposition or attitude or way of thinking. It refers to the aim of something, the goal of something. I want you to be striving together for one goal. What is that one goal? Is it church harmony? No. Back in chapter 1, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's the oneness of direction. That's the oneness of aim. That's the oneness of intention. Of the same mind, thinking the same way, of the same love, united in one spirit, one soul, without any disharmony between all of you, united together, one intent on one purpose. And we get to the end of all of that, and I know that some of you here, maybe, some of you here are sitting here and you're thinking, Jim, you finally have softened up. You finally softened up. You're not the hard case you used to be anymore. Now you're fine. I've been praying for this and waiting for this, and finally you're willing to go out and hug all the theological liberals and the social conservatives and just all get together and stop harping on these issues of truth. I'm glad now we can all be the brotherhood of mankind and the neighborhood of Kootenai and loves and hugs and kisses for everybody. Finally you've got to that point. Somebody else is saying, there you go, Jim's gone liberal on us. Now there's no hope for it. What we're going to do next week is we're going to find out how it is that we get rid of that guy because he's gone soft. Now listen, friends, I'm, I haven't gone liberal on you at all, and I haven't changed my position on anything. I'm all for Christian unity. Do you know what kind of unity it is? Have you heard it yet? It's the Gospel. It's chapter 1. All the other unity is fake unity. Do you know that unity can be sin? you realize that? Some people think unity is such the highest ideal that it could never, in any circumstance, be a sin. That's not true. If you are united with somebody who denies the Gospel and blasphemes Christ, and you are working together with them to present or promote some agenda, some point, or to get along with them, and you have to deny truth to do it, you are a blasphemer. You are an apostate. And that type of unity is sin. Not all unity is good. Some unity is horribly bad. What's the type of unity that we need to have? Striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's the unity. Truth unifies us. Truth does two wonderful things. It divides people and it unifies people. Does it not? It divides people and it unifies people. So here's my position on it. I think that our tent, our unity, our embrace should be as big as the gospel. And as long as we can both affirm together the essential elements of the gospel without polluting it or corrupting it, we can all hold hands and hug. That's the extent of the unity. But when you add something to that and or get rid of the gospel, then we have no basis for unity. But what happens in churches is we say, we'll have unity as big as the gospel and only hymns and no choruses and King James only. And skirts below the knees, and short hair for men, and no beards, and pretty soon the circle gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, and then you don't have unity. All you have is factions that exist. And I say, forget all the rest of it, long hair, King James only, whatever it is. Forget all of those things, and let's have an embrace that it is as big as the gospel. But you're going to quickly realize that that is a very small embrace, is it not? Especially when we live in a very pluralistic age where the gospel is denied, And what what is promoted and what is pursued is unity at all costs. Liberal churches have hijacked the word unity just like they've hijacked the word tolerance. They say tolerance, but by tolerance they don't mean classical tolerance where I put up with you because I disagree with you. That's not what they mean by tolerance. What they mean by tolerance now is I have to affirm your immoral behavior. Or I'm intolerant. They've done the same thing with unity. We need unity amongst people. What they really mean is not unity around the truth. What they really mean is no truth. Let's just all get together for an outward show of solidarity. And what they really want is union, but not unity. Listen, if you take two cats and you tie their tails together and you put them over a clothesline, you will have achieved union, but not unity. OK? Now, I want to pause for a second and just enjoy that image that's in my mind. <laughs> You will have achieved union, but not unity. You take two people who are at war with each other, and you put them together in a marriage, you have achieved union, but not unity. What is it that unifies? The truth. That's what we die for. We have an embrace that is as big as the truth. Outside of that, you're not inside the embrace. And we're not going to open up the embrace. We're not going to deny truth to make you feel welcome. One purpose, one mind, intent on one thing, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And just because somebody comes along and says, I'm a Christian too, embrace me, you don't say, no, you tell me what you believe about the gospel, and then we'll see if you're welcome. But until that time, we're not going to deny truth just to get unity. It's not unity at the sake of truth. We're not after union. We're not after two cats hanging over a clothesline. We're after unity. So let me give you two applications of all of this. First of all, friends, the blessings that you and I have received make us debtors. The blessings that you and I have received make us debtors in Christ. That's what Paul's saying in verses 1 to 2. If there is any, since these things are true, you have received all of these blessings, therefore you have an obligation, a debt to your brother to live for him. And the person who says, I'm not going to do that, I'm going to live for myself, is an individual who says to the Lord, I'm willing to receive all of these blessings from your hand, but I'm not willing to pass those on to anybody else. I'm fine with getting all of the comfort and affection and love for myself, but I'm not going to turn around and give that to my brother in Christ. And that is a hideous, horrible sin. That is selfishness. The the blessings that we have received make us debtors to live for other people. That's why he says in verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. This is your obligation because you've received all of these blessings. You're a debtor to Him. Do you know how hideous division is and disunity is within a church? You ever stop for a minute just to ponder how it is that the Lord feels about disunity and division within a church? Proverbs chapter 6, listing all of the things that the Lord hates. The Lord hates. Proverbs 6 says, the Lord hates the man who causes strife among brethren. The Lord hates the person who causes strife among brethren. If you have ever, for one minute, begun to stir up strife among people, controversy and division, friends, you have stepped into dangerous territory because God hates that with a passion. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 10 says, 10 says You drive out the scoffer and contention will cease. Paul writing to Pastor Titus, Titus chapter 3 verse 10, he says you reject a divisive man after the first and the second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning and self-condemned. You give him one warning, you give him two warning and boom, out of there. Why? He's perverted and he's sinning and he's self-condemned. That's how the Lord views it. Romans chapter 16, I urge you to keep an eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's a wonderful and glorious thing. The blessings that we have received make us debtors to dwell together in unity. Second thing I want to pass on, and we'll close. You and I have to remember what it is that causes division and disunity among us. What is it? It's really only one thing. It's always only one thing. It's never the truth. I mean, if we're if we're dividing over truth, and it might be the truth that divides, but it never has to be us who divides needlessly over truth. But it always boils down to one thing that's always at the center of every division, every strife, every jealousy, every conflict. Do you know what it is? It is self-love. It is self-worship. It is self-conceit and vanity. It is somebody in the body who says, I want what I want. I want music to be my way. I want the color of the carpet to be this. I want the windows to have this. I want this to be taught. I want this to be sung. I want this. I want this. I want this. And what they really want is their flesh gratified. They want to control everybody else. And so what you end up with is strife, is vanity and empty conceit, jealousy, strife and divisions among us. You know what it all boils down to? The worship of self. And all of the envy, the strife, and the selfish ambition, and the love of money, and everything that comes out of that is all the fruits of self-worship. So we've got to remember what it is that causes disunity and strife. It's us wanting our way as opposed to God's way, us wanting our thing at somebody else's expense rather than being interested in the interests of others. And now we get to the very end of it, and you say, okay, I get it, Jim. Unity is a premium. Unity is good. Unity amongst God's people is something that we should strive for. We should seek to pursue that. We should endeavor to preserve it. I get it. I understand it. Now what does that look like? How do I apply this? What am I to do this week that might preserve the unity of our body in the bond of peace? What is it going to look like practically speaking? Well, that's in verses 3 to 4. you got to learn how to live with each other. you got to know that you got to live with each other before you can figure out how to live for each other. So verses three to four has what it is that you and I do practically speaking. We'll get to it next week. But in the meantime, let me boil it down and give you the essence of it. And it is this. You wage war on yourself, on you. And in everything that we do, we ask ourselves, why am I doing this? We're going to talk about motive next week. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I saying what I am saying? Do you know what the difference is between gossip And helpful discussion about a person and the issues that they're going through it's the motive it's the motive Jess and I might discuss something or Dave and I might discuss something or all of us might discuss something that's going on in somebody's life or that somebody is struggling with or that somebody is dealing with outside of their presence for the sake of helping them or healing them or in somehow encouraging them and if that's the motive then it's good but we may say the same things with the motive of tearing them down and destroying them in our minds and in our hearts. And in that case, it's selfish. Everything I say, everything I do, every act of service, every place I go, I have to ask myself, am I doing this to promote myself or somebody else? And you have to ask yourself the same question. Do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit. And we'll see what that means exactly next week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that in one faith and through one faith and in one spirit we are all all baptized into Christ Jesus. We thank you for that unity of your church which does exist as an objective reality in truth, by truth, and through truth. And we pray that you would give to us the grace to live that out in our affection and in our love for one another that we might please you by dwelling together in unity and honoring you in everything. We pray that you would remove from us and cast from us every prideful, sinful, wicked, and selfish way that we might honor you by serving others and glorify you through living selfless lives intent on building up the glory of your kingdom, the other saints, and your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.